is Swampside Chats, a podcast where, every week, commies sit down to shoot the shit about current events, history, political economy, and theory. This week, we read Fascism slash Anti-Fascism by Gilles Duvet, which is an excerpt of an article called Counter-Revolution in Spain, written under the pen name Jean Barreau. Jake, I'm with Communist League Tampa, and joining me tonight is Lexi. Hey, it's Lexi, the worst product of fascism. And Donald. Uh, Donald, Communist League of Tampa. All right, we got the uh, we got the basic crew tonight. The original three. Yeah, night shift. Night shift. We're talking about Antifa, or rather the uh, G's Dove APs. Fascism, anti-fascism. Cheese Dave. Is it what is it? I I can never pronounce those French names. Def, those French names I've correctly. It, I've heard it in a kind of Oakland. They call it uh, Gilles Duvet. I kind of trust uh, them to know French because they're in grad school. Yeah, I remember when I first when I first like because I used to I read a bunch of theory and stuff and then I went to protest shit and I was like, hey, have you guys ever heard of faux cult? So I'm probably <laughs> not going to be like the authority on how you pronounce French names. How about Jean Barreau? We can all agree on that, right? That sounds pretty good. Yeah, I don't know. Jean Barreau, whatever. Anyway, so he this text originally appeared in 1979 as part of an introduction to a collection of writings by Italian left communists on the Spanish Civil War. Yeah, this was uh, the Bogon group, which was basically a group of Italian exiles from Bordiga's Communist Party who were writing about why the proletarian revolution failed. And they were very critical of the popular front in the Spanish Civil War. It's interesting looking at this. I think obviously part of the reason that we decided to read this was because, you know, anti-fascism or as it's now known, Antifa has become an increasingly hot topic in the United States and more and more people are weighing in on it, especially from the right now. Uh, There's like a lot of backlash and paranoia and like weird shit on the internet about like Antifa and the Antifa menace, even from like Fox News and traditional conservative press. It, but I've, I read this text like a long time ago, and I like it, even though I disagree with a lot of the like the nitty gritty of it. What I like more is its its willingness to criticize something that, on its face, appears to be almost like an objectively moral and correct thing. Like who could disagree with anti-fascism, right? But. It advances an argument, like part of the argument that it advances, I think, is really useful, even if it, I guess you could say, in some respects, bends the stick a little too far in the other direction. I mean, there's one part of this where he literally says that, like, anti-fascism is the worst product of fascism, which I'm not sure it's the worst product of fascism. Yeah, that's going to go to the Holocaust there, Jill. (laughs) Yeah, well, we can get into that later, because that's a whole other can of worms, but... uh... (laughs) Where should well, we start? Well, I mean, it starts with the Holocaust, right? But 
My, it does. It, yeah, basically says the first few words of it are um, the horrors of fascism were not the first of their kind, nor were they the last, nor were they the worst, no matter what anyone says. These horrors were no more than no worse than, quote, normal massacres due to wars, famines, etc. For the proletarians, it was a more systematic version of the terrors experienced in 1832, 1848, 1871, 1919. However, fascism occupies a special place in the spectacle of horrors. This time around, indeed, some capitalists and a good part of the political class were repressed, along with the leadership of the rank and file of the official working class organizations. For the bourgeoisie and the petite bourgeoisie, fascism was an abnormal phenomenon, a degradation of democratic values explicable only by recourse to psychological explanations. There's this a lot of bullshit. Of <laughs> I think like, that it's just, it's, yeah, it's kind of like saying that anyone who thinks the Holocaust is somewhat, you know, unique as a historical event is just full of shit. And I think there is, you know, something truly insane in the Holocaust that makes it, you know, exceptionally evil. But, you know, Dave is always saying, oh, it's all just, you know, the same massacres done in the name of capital. It basically so argues think that it doesn't matter. Yeah, he basically I, argues it kind of makes it like there's a there's no distinguishing between the evil of like ethnically based killing and the killing of you know people for political reasons, and uh, civil and wars and stuff. There, there's a footnote here, the first footnote where he draws out what he means a little bit. I actually just kind of want to read it in full. Um, public opinion does not condemn Nazism so much for its horrors. Because since then, other states, in fact, the capitalist organization of the world economy, have proven to be just as destructive of human life through wars and artificial famines as the Nazis. Rather, Nazism is condemned because it acted deliberately, because it was consciously willed, because it decided to exterminate the Jews. No one is responsible for famines, which decimate whole peoples, but the Nazis, they wanted to exterminate. In order to eradicate this absurd moralism, one must have a materialist conception of the concentration camps. They were not the product of a world gone mad. On the contrary, they obeyed normal capitalist logic applied in special circumstances, both in their origin and in their operations. Uh, the camps belong to the capitalist world. Well, I th the argument there, I think, is basically that there was a surplus. There were basically surplus populations that were superfluous to capital accumulation, and thus the Holocaust was like a rational way. Or maybe in any rational way to deal with a rational problem intrinsic to capitalism, which, eh, I mean, I'd say the ward in general was pro would probably be a better expression yeah, of that. I think um, the best historical work on this question is Arno Mayer's "Did the Heavens Not Darken," which basically you know describes how the Holocaust developed, not as you know the original intentions of the Nazi Party, but developed through the process of war. I don't think it was completely just the logic of capital because there was this insane colonization project that the Nazis had embarked on, which I think is, you know, kind of, it can't be reduced to capitalist logic. And I think it's just, it's kind of ridiculous, you know. It's well, just, wasn't their colonization just, project basically like imperialism in Eastern Europe, essentially? Yeah, that's basically what their plan was, is they wanted to create... Um, you know, basically colonize Eastern Europe into being a Lebensraum is what they call the living space for the Aryan people. And Freedom they would room. use the labor of the Jews and Slavs basically to, um, you know, live the good life. But it's kind of racial um, republic. And I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but wasn't the Nazi justification for that very similar to basically what they they basically claimed they were trying to do in Eastern Europe, what United States did 
in the Americas, essentially, where we'll commit genocide and then use enslaved populations to prop up a white aristocracy. <laughs> but I'd also say that, you know, the genocide of the indigenous Americans isn't something that can be reduced to just capitalist logic. It has a lot to do with the political realities of the state. And I don't think, you know, admitting that the Holocaust is especially bad doesn't mean you don't have to admit that that's not also especially bad. Right. You know? Yeah, I mean, I mean the Holocaust has gas chambers. What else do you use gas chambers for? Like, there's something, I don't know, really particularly disturbing about erecting an industrial death machines with help from IBM and the latest in technology to wipe out defenseless people in this really highly managed industrial way with big state-of-the-art bureaucracy and there's a difference between like accidentally killing someone in a hit and run and like going full saw and like bring them to your basement and doing you know what i mean like there's it's so cold and calculated but in a way that can't i i just don't see how this can be reduced to capitalist logic uh moishi Post one, Moish Post one has a, an essay called Anti-Semitism and National Socialism that uh, makes this point pretty well that, you know, there's no, I'm just going to read the little blurb, no functionalist explanation of the Holocaust and, and no scapegoat theory of anti-Semitism can even begin to explain why in the last years of the war, when the German forces were being crushed by the Red Army, a significant proportion of vehicles was deflected from logistical support and used to transport Jews to the gas chambers. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, so this argument by Dave about capitalism, this is, this is just the logical operation of capitalism. It just kind of it falls apart when you look more closely at the Holocaust. It's but I think totally kind of what fine. he's saying is almost that there's, um, to use the term ideology, there's this post-war ideology where the democratic state uses the idea that fascism is especially evil and that because... You know, these liberal democratic states abolished, you know, fought against fascism. That means that, you know, this liberal democracy is great. And so it's kind of saying that in looking at the Holocaust and fascism is especially bad. It's just kind of a way for bourgeois democracy to legitimate itself by using fascism as the enemy. And there's just to me a lot of problems with that thesis as well. And it kind of can lead into weird political directions. There is there is some truth to it though. I mean, we're kind of seeing it right now, or we're, or at least we're seeing in the United States a particular sector of the left attempting to use like the specter of fascism in order to try to hold together like this big nasty political coalition that you know is basically completely capitalist and running roughshod over the planet and its own people. Well, there is, there's truth to it. Yeah. Yeah. There is something about the anti-fascist, the critique of anti-fascism that is important. That's something that we should be echoing. But we have to disentangle it from all this extremely flattening stuff about, you know, these are just two wings of capital. Um, there's there's right. something really wrong with that argument that's absurd on its face that no one that's not, you know, totally in the theory brainwash zone is, is going to even let them pass a smell test like – but, well, I feel like, and I, I mean, I have a lot of problems with this, but there is some truth. I mean, because he paints this picture where basically the state is dominant and democracy and fascism is basically a good cop, bad cop game being played against the working class, which 
there is some truth to that because whenever whenever things get out of hand, that's when fascism comes in, and after a while, it goes away, and more normalized, democratic, functioning of government returns. Like, this does seem to be a cycle that has occurred historically. Yeah, he's right that fascism is a form of capitalism. It's a form of maintaining bourgeois rule in a state of crisis. And he's right that it's the popular front of the bourgeoisie. Uniting with the bourgeoisie is the wrong way to fight fascism. And like I agree with him on those political points completely. Yes. But it's from it's just a lot of other stuff he says just has kind of weird consequences to me. And Spilmos is kind of just saying that we can't fight fascism no matter what, because fighting fascism will intrinsically lead to collaboration with the bourgeoisie. And we can only just have like a complete struggle against capital. There's an uh, there's a later form of this essay uh, that's more famous called When Insurrections Die. Uh, that was, you know, made, uh, I guess, you know, ultra left famous by uh, Endnotes in their f- first um, first volume. And like in that one, he's a little more explicit that you can attack fascism and not be, quote, anti-fascist, quote, as long as you're also attacking co- the cops. And there is something to this when you look at the way that like police will behave in. I don't know, at least I anticipate when fascists come to San Francisco, the police will behave in a different fashion when, as, as opposed to the way that fascists behave when there's uh, similar conflicts in Arizona, for instance, and there's more of an open white nationalist element in society. Like, there is a way that Antifa in more generally conservative or reactionary places has to figure out the hard way that the cops aren't their friends. I think, though, that it's too easy to point out specific examples where the cops do side with, you know, against the fascists. For example, Charlottesville, the cops kick the fascists out of the park. And sure. And so sometimes the interests of the bourgeois state and, you know, the proletariat, and you can say they both have an interest in fascism not existing. And those interests can converge. And I, I think the better metaphor is, you know, rather than, you know, uniting with the bourgeoisie on a political front, we point our guns in the same direction at the same enemy. And sometimes it's strateg- strategically and tactically more viable to focus on one enemy versus the other. I think that is... Well, it really depends on the context, because if you're in a situation where smashing the state is in the cards... And there is also fascism going on. I'm not sure what I see what the efficacy uh, is of preserving the bourgeois state and the fat in order to fight the fascists. But that's that's in a state of like absolute revolutionary crisis when you when you get and when you know. And Dov is wrong that you know the uh, CNT pretty much sold out to the popular front. But I think it's for example like the Kornilov coup in October. The Bolsheviks led part of the resistance of the Kornilov coup. And basically, you could argue that that was protecting the provisional government. That was protecting the, you know, the, the bourgeois state. But, you know, that actually ended up saving the Bolsheviks' ability to still organize and want them support from the masses that allowed them to take power in October. And so I don't think it's necessarily true that, that you know, 
The proletariat doesn't have any interest at all in fighting for its democratic rights, almost, is what Dave's conclusion is. Well, that's what seems to be the weak point of this whole thing, is that fascism and anti-fascism, obviously, that's the title of the piece, so those are discussed in depth. But he throws around the term democracy just as much, mm -hmm. but he never gives a really clear definition of what democracy is. He's playing the nominalistic game that a lot of the you know, Italian ultra-left tends to do with democracy and that, you know, democracy is, you know, what they say democracy is. And that's what you do with a concept if you have no interest in defending a specific form of it. A lot of liberals don't care about the word communism, but they'll try to rehabilitate the word socialism and give themselves a definition they can live with. Well, you know, I, I think that as communists, you know, if we're going to bother to try to rescue something like communism, um, it would kind of behoove us to look at something like the word democracy and see if we could not, you know, wrest a different version of it from history than how it's currently used. I mean, if we're going to bother to do it with the word communism, I, I don't see what we lose by, yeah, exactly. by doing that. It's like if we can't save the word democracies from bourgeois hegemony, why can't we save the word democracy and point out that? Basically, the, I think the inherent rule of capital, like Dave kind of has this idea that capitalism, when it's normally working, its ideal state of form is democracy. But I don't think this is necessarily true. I think what a lot of bourgeois ideologists call democracy is not actually having popular institutions where the masses are brought in to make decisions in the state, which is what I think which is what Marxists advocate for. But what they really mean is rule of law constitutionalism. And really, they can care less about the ability of people to influence the state. And the more people get that ability, the more the bourgeoisie uses corruption to maintain their rule. And so I think there's a sense in which democracy is, you know, it's not, it's not reducible to just one, monog like one monolithic thing, you know. It's, a, it's not reducible to whatever the bourgeoisie says it is. Yeah, in a piece, it just seems like democracy is used to refer to bourgeois parliamentarianism. But there's the thing is, is that like a big part of Marx's critique of democracy is that it's it's an imminent critique. He first of all, but he's not just he's not purely negating democracy, but he's looking at what the unfulfilled promises of democracy are. Well, since you know, and without disregarding the importance of those initial democratic gains. For example, Marx, you know, he supported free speech. He supported basically the liberty to freely politically associate within bourgeois society. And I think that that's actually an important thing for Marxists to fight for. And Dave basically argues the exact opposite. Uh, well, you know, the thing is, is that I I imagined when pressed and, and you know, even Duvet so, says something along the lines of, you know, of course, I'd rather be exploited like a Swede. You know, than like in Portugal, um, th there's a sense in which, of course, everyone would prefer to be in a more consensual order, even if it's a, a you know, and and a you know a less coercive order, I should say, because you know, whatever, manufactured consent and the like. But still, like, one would prefer to be in one order than the other. Duvet says, well, you know, you don't really get a choice; you just get the state and you know whatever it needs, and. There's something 
ultra structuralist about this that gives yes. a little yes. breathes a little life into what the whole debate in endnotes is even about because i guess in endnotes one there's a debate between two sets of structuralists and <laughs> you know the theory communist is is critiquing duvet for not being structuralist enough not like following through on the 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 pill he's already swallowed you know not not finishing the meal here like well if you're gonna just reduce things to structure that hard then um then maybe this whole theory of revolution is is totally wrong-headed like when i was reading endnotes one i kind of liked where duvet was coming from a little more he seemed to have a little more room for historical agency on the part of the proletariat on the part of the proletariat but he even says something along the lines in this essay that fascism has nothing to do with the intentions of the bourgeoisie, which that doesn't strike me as true at all. It seems that most of the time that fascism has taken form, it was because the bourgeoisie was like, well, got to manage the state with this. Like we, we intend to put fascism in power now. Like, and, and that's the thing that's missing today. Like I, I don't see any, political basis for like the the political class being like what what we really need are these nazis to you know come in and and make order like that doesn't right it it, it always it it coincides with a crisis point where you know it's like the bourgeoisie is a point well yeah i guess i guess we can try this at least they're not commies right even if it's like something exactly exactly I guess the counterpoint would be summed up in the Bordigas saying uh, the fascist countries lost the war while fascism won and that um, the post-war states like the liberal and, you know, Stalinist states incorporated so much of fascist rule, including the sort of totalitarian drive towards atomization. If totalitarianism means anything, there's got to be something about atomization in there and, and, you know, destroying the capacity for there to be a civil society to, to push against the state at all. I mean, he's right that the, the bourgeois states were willing to cooperate with far right, you know, parties and nationalist death squads and all these things throughout the world. Absolutely. But it's more than that. It's that the regular functioning of bourgeois democracy has now dismantled the ability for even labor organizing See, but I think that bourgeois democracy still exists in the United States, though. We still are able to freely assemble, and we're we're able to have this podcast, you know? Sure. What they call totalitarianism, what he's calling totalitarianism, what Roderick was kind of calling a type of totalitarianism, I don't like to call that totalitarianism because there's something much more diffuse about it, Such something so much more obviously consensual even if it's by this like really gross lockean kind of consent but it's still not the naked jackboot like all the time yeah the political discourse and the culture isn't organized around like a single thing that excludes everything that is outside of it and so tries to contain all within itself whereas you know, again, it's sort of like DeBoer's concept of uh, concentrated versus diffuse spectacle. Concentrated, concentrated. And then I guess the dialectical outcome of that was integrated spectacle. The parameters of what fits within the culture itself are as much wider, and thus, you know, it's allows for a bit more, I guess, what, what you could call controlled opposition. And so it's hard to call it totalitarianism in the same way that you would call, 
you know, something like Nazism, totalitarianism. But, but you know, that's um, the project of the. I, I, you get the sense from the like the neo Bordigas, like in, in Italy, like uh, especially you know once you start get, getting to Kamat, you can see the anti modernity in full bloom, um, and it, it's also part of the way the Frankfurt School ends up operating. The Adorno Horkheimer stuff in the Frankfurt School it's flowers in this direction. Yeah, there's a point where um, I think a lot of this ultra-left stuff becomes so against bourgeois democracy that it does kind of stray into this anti-modernist territory, basically, where, like, for example, saying there's absolutely nothing progressive about democracy, and there's absolutely no reason why the proletariat would prefer democracy to fascism. I think it's, it just ignores how, under fascism, the proletariat literally is outlawed from the most basic forms of organization. And the only type of struggle that can take place are through these. There's no, you know, you have a corporate state that's set up to completely try to disable the proletariat from class struggle, and not just that, from political organization and um, creating any kind of institutions. The thing that bothers me about writing like this is that Devane knows that, you know, like, and he knows we know that, and he's writing this in an intentionally sort of trollish way. <laughs> oh like, yeah. This is definitely designed to rustle some jimmies, like it's, which is part of it's the piece's charm, actually, in a way, because yeah, it's part of what annoys me about it. <laughs> well, no, because there is it, so it, much, there's so much buttons. moralism, like caught, yeah, caught in like anti-fascism that having somebody just come along and basically troll the whole thing is sort of amusing to read. Yeah, that's true. And it, 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 I mean, at least it's, it's got a lot of problems, but I think in the, oh yeah, one I reason mean, I, one reason, the reason I actually do enjoy reading it, like, cause I've read this a few different times is because it does kind of in the face of all like this moralistic hot air, it really feels like a breath of fresh air, even if he's kind of full of shit on a few different points. Yeah. There is this moralistic sense that right now, if you're not out there fighting Nazis, you're not on the right side. You need to be 100% supportive of anything that's called Antifa and what they do. And yeah, or like well, look at the, look at the way like Noam Chomsky is getting treated for some offhand comments in an interview, and people and people are people are livid at the man for you know mm -hmm. putting forth. The, it wasn't like super developed critique of, of anti-fascism, but there's this weird kind of reaction to it where people are like, "You let me down, man. I don't believe in nothing no more. I'm going to law <laughs> school." Yeah. Well, you know, there's a kind of post-ironic in quotes, super distant. I'm not saying this, but I'm saying this, like Twitter reaction where you know, wow, comrade Mitt Romney over fucking Noam Chomsky. That kind of you know illustrates the point. Like, yeah, really to put aside you know everything else for that. Like, yeah, it's really bizarre. Well, you know, Chomsky at least has that teensy little bit of of uh, suspicion that he's able to articulate. And you know what? It, he does come out sounding like a liberal and, you know, yeah, it, was, it was kind of a liberal critique of Antifa rather than kind of pointing yeah. out the limits of anti-fascism as a um, way to abolish capitalism. That's, I think a lot of leftists today because, you know, Antifa is kind of popping up. They think that we're going to build the movement through anti-fascism. You know, that's going to be the movement for which we build a mass popular constituency and, you know, kind of rebuild the left, whether anarchist um, or Marxist or even social democratic. I mean, so, to, be, to be honest, like, March Against Monsanto probably had a better chance of doing that than Antifa, but I digress. 
Oh, well, that, yeah, I mean, yeah. I don't think Antifa is going to, I don't think you can build like, like a, a real movement that can displace the bourgeoisie through just basically showing up wherever Nazis show up and fighting them. Because it's the thing is, is that it's purely reactive. And, yeah, most know, people going through their daily lives don't encounter organized fascists. You know, like the, right. the, it's so far removed from like their regularized existence. It It exists entirely, you know. In the well, if you're a radical, it's very much more likely that you'll have to deal with fascists, you know. Right. right. You'll have to, you know, for example, there's people in, you know, Europe today who have to defend their um, meetings from fascists in some cases. So, you know, it, it it is a real thing, you know. It is a real thing that people do have to organize to fight against in many cases. And, for example, like if 5,000 Nazis you know, decided to have a rally in my town, I would want to kick them the fuck out because I know that bad shit is just going to come with them. Like, it's going to just lead to bad things happening, regardless of whether Antifa shows up or not. What could we possibly do that, I don't know, that will satisfy the moral, the moralistic criterion, which I think there's, you know what, when I say something is, like, moralistic or even moral, like... That doesn't mean I don't like agree with the underlying principle. There's so- something needs to be done about that. Um, but but you know that doesn't mean that all of our strategic orientation necessarily follows from what is morally right. And I, I don't know how to deal with that intuition really. <laughs> it means because... you, you basically just have to submit to the norms and the yeah basically submit to the norms of the congregation. Like that's that's what that's what it really comes down to. Like if you just go along and validate with what everyone else is saying and go along to get along, then you're fine. But if you step out and question it, uh, then that's when you get the hit with the moralistic shit. I think you know it's it really comes down to is is that a lot of Antifa activism is basically trying to prevent the ideology. It's very idealistic in the sense that it sees fascist ideology as being you know, produced by, you know, I don't know, for example, you know, people trying to shut down Def and June shows think that, you know, fascism is kind of culturally created. I think, I think that's, that's another level of removal. The stuff, the stuff over Milo, like was obviously more serious than that. Oh yeah, definitely. I'm just saying that there's a sense that obviously, obviously fascism is produced by dissemination of fascist ideology. And so really what we need to do is just prevent them from speaking at all costs. And so if this leads to a kind of re- reactive form of anti-fascism that simply... I, I don't think that's the main problem this time, right? Like, like it's, there's something else going on in that, like, with Milo. Milo had, like, outed uh, a trans woman and publicly mocked her and misgendered her and posted information about her, which is pretty kind of... Yeah, it's, 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 it's hard to prove incitement. But that's like, mm, that is it, arguably it's, really insightful. the speech is for. <laughs> Even going by John Stuart Mill stuff, you know what I mean? Which... It's, it's stupid to reduce to a theory of free speech, too, because the whole free speech argument is kind of like this idea that liberals have where politics is supposed to be settled in a parliament according to, you know, proper manners and proper behavior and everything is managed and which really ignores that, you know, the state is basically like the gender arm of the bourgeoisie and the state is basically at war with the proletariat and that politics is basically, you know, war. And then, you know, at the core of politics is violence. And I think that in the end, like, it's not going to be, you know, parliamentary debates that settle all these questions. It's going to, you know, be beyond that. 
Mm. And liberals don't want that to happen. Liberals want to keep politics simply within the, you know, the confines of civil parliamentarianism, which is why it's problematic to even side with liberals against fascists. It's because you're going to be limited to having to defend liberal constitutional order, you know. And so that's the thing maybe about anti-fascism as like the main praxis for building a new communist movement or something is that you're the most militant foot soldiers for the present order. There is a right wing smear of anti-fascism that I kind of gives me this guilty resonance where they say it's they're the militant wing of the Democratic Party. And there's a functional sense in which because we're going to be throwing a lot of our energy into this, you know, moral fight against fascist uh, regroupment and violence. And there's really something morally compelling about it. Just, you know, like it's maybe it's my own guilty conscience coming out, you know, but um, I don't know. It's not mutually exclusive from doing the long-term organizing that we're probably supposed to be doing, actually putting down roots and stuff. I, I, not that I'm doing that. I'm rootless, but um it guarantees that we're going to be exhausted and that in you know 2018 or whatever 2020 whatever there's going to be no political alternative again and there's probably going to be some kind of anti-fascist flavored democratic campaigns with the kind of bullying that goes along with it you know with a repurposed um it's also depressingly predictable it's also depressingly predictable there's there's a quote in here every so often there's a real scorcher um, uh, it's like on page three, paradoxically, the essence of anti-fascist mystification is that the Democrats conceal the nature of fascism as much as possible while they display an apparent radicalism in denouncing it here, there, and everywhere. This has been going on for 50 years now. <laughs> he's, he's absolutely correct there. I mean, I yeah. remember, you know, hearing about like in, reading about people in the 80s in England talking about the BNP and we have to fight fascism. And it seems to be this thing that continually reemerges as a way for the left to find something to focus on that it could maybe achievably beat because it can't beat capitalism. <laughs> yeah, see, that's, that's why I don't think you can really build a movement based on anti-fascism. But how you have to do is, I think... Um, I don't know, this is kind of in line with Trotsky's ideas, I guess, but you have to build up the workers' movement, and you fight fascism just in that process alone because you have to defend the movement that you're building from, you know, counter-revolutionaries. Even in a non-revolutionary period, fascists will try to fuck up your meetings and stuff, and you have to defend yourself from them. And so there's, you know, and in some cases, the best defense may be an offense, you know, but it's framed within the it's framed within protecting the working class and its institutions and defending them. Well, the irony is that this is coming from, you know, at least from Duvet, it's coming from people that basically also think that organizing around labor is bound to not <laughs> to to not really, you know, be able to produce a communist revolution like uh, And so it's almost like they want something more autonomous than that. Because the workers' institutions will also sell you out to democracy, which will pave the way for fascism. So it's all basically fascism. So they're basically fascist. <laughs> yeah, he, he kind of says that the counter-revolution comes first from the workers' or organizations themselves and then from the fascists. And the fascists is kind of just them finishing up what the 
you know, with, with the betrayal of the uh, workers by the social democrats was. And there's a sense in which, I mean, we got a cop to, you know, when you look at Germany, like, and, and the Fry Corps, there's something really, you know, there's something there. And the, the yeah. question, the yeah. question is, isn't, you know, that we, it's not that we ignore that. It's just that after reading McNair and kind of agreeing with this negative critique of class collaborationism, but then not agreeing with the way he handles democracy and not agreeing with the, the flattening of fascism and liberalism. I mean, I guess you could say bourgeois parliamentarianism substitutes for democracy in his in his view. But what what should be the definition of democracy then, if uh, if that's incorrect? Well, I mean, yeah, cool question. There's it's a difficult question because you have the, I mean democracy has different class connotations, like are arguably you know proletarian democracy is different from bourgeois democracy. I think you know that bourgeois democracy would be defined by rule of law constitutionalism with you know a parliament perhaps, but ultimately it's 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 not really based on people making it's not based on the collective decision making of the masses basically as Marl Marx would call the self government of the commune or you know which also ties into Davé's critique of the Paris commune he takes his anti-democratism so far and he actually ends up saying that you know the, the Paris commune was just, you know just pure democratism and not even really a, a, pro, a proletarian revolution yeah that 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 was, you know, gutsy. You, you gotta, you gotta give it to I mean, me. Like, it was gutsy. It was just stupid. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Like, they're they're really, they're really trying to rustle Jimmy's and, you know, take a shot at dogma. And there's there's something about that that is like a little a little refreshing, even if it's you know kind of. I mean, stupid. you could even say that democracy is something that's separate from liberalism, and that liberalism is actually capitalist rule. And democracy is a more popular form of rule that liberalism has to make a sort of stalemate with, perhaps. The, the thing is, is that, you know, when liberals really did get power and get to, you know, restructure the world, they didn't do universal suffrage. Like, it was exactly. the, the workers' exactly. movement, like, won universal suffrage and won more expansive versions of, yeah. of democracy. Well, that's and, kind of my problem with Dave's understanding of democracy, is he acts like it's just the natural form of bourgeois rule, when a lot of things that we associate with democracy were won by the proletariat. So he kind of assumes that the state is entirely derived from the bourgeoisie when really the state is more so derived from the class struggle between the bourgeoisie and the proletariat. Well, this, it, also, it also suggests that, you know, the so-called democratic norms that make up like the modern bourgeois state are actually functional. Like there's very little that's democratic about it. I mean, obviously yeah. it is on paper, but you know, there's a whole host of tools that are utilized by the ruling class in order to make the whole system as unrepresentative of people's actual desires as possible yeah so you can't really yeah. say that the current you know form of this the current decisions of the state are the result of like the democratic will of the population i mean that's insane yeah the irony is is that duvet is coming from this bordicus tradition and even though this like he is obviously like abandoning the leninism this particular argument literally comes from like you know systematized leninism out of the common turn like and it gen genuinely does have an origin in the way 
the you know the shift in how Lenin and the Bolsheviks talk about bourgeois democracy, uh, specifically Lenin, you know, who definitely has you know a relatively positive view of bourgeois democracy. I think Duvet would agree that you know 1921 Leninism is a uh, is ideology, perhaps even totalitarian ideology. And so just genealogically, where he gets this argument from is literally totalitarian ideology. There's something just charming about that. Well, yeah, I mean, his argument is, you know, it's similar to third period Stalinism. I mean, the people, left comms always get really mad when you compare his position to third period Stalinism. But basically, he is saying that we can't unite with the social democrats to fight fascism because, you know, that's class collaboration but they're social fascists yeah because they're social fascists and you know it's really the same thing democracy is really the same thing as fascism fascism is just you know doesn't have the mystification of democracy i guess yeah jehu was saying this on on twitter he was like saying that the you know the social democratic party was basically always state socialist and state state socialism is always fascist so you know, basically, doesn't does yeah, he also argue that like the United does. States was fascist since it went off the gold standard or something? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I, I don't, sure. I can't remember I've... exactly where he said this, but he also said like Nick Land is like the last serious communist or like you know, oh, one God. of the last. That's that's true. That, that Nick Land's a, a race realist. Like, Honestly, it'd be interesting to read some Nick Land and talk about it on this show. Just we should dissect it. But um, speaking of fascism, <laughs> yeah. But um, in my view, fascism is it's 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 really more of a it's part of the counter enlightenment tradition that really begins with the reaction against the French Revolution led by, led by Catholic monarchists, and it's you know it's the tradition of the Black Hundreds, it's the tradition of um, the Ku Klux Klan in the United States, for example. Like fascism is basically the counter revolutionary mo- the counter revolution like mobilized. And, you know, to take power for itself almost in a lot of cases. Yeah. And it's because it's against both democracy and communism. And so, in a way, it kind of shows that there is kind of this connection between the workers' movement and having a a functional democracy, for example. That it really is the workers' movement that makes, you know, what we understand a lot of democracy to be actually, you know, viable. Yeah, there needs to be a disaggregation of appreciating democracy and fighting for its expansion and capitulation to the bourgeois state. Exactly. And I think that Davé sees capitulation to the bourgeois state in a theoretical era where you overemphasize the goods of bourgeois democracy, whereas I don't think it's, you know, that's, I just don't buy that. Well, I think that material basis of his argument is that it's very difficult to split the difference. It's very difficult to fight for reforms without becoming subsumed into the system. That's it's hard. Like, but that doesn't mean it could not or should not be done. If there is a reason that it could not or should not be done, it is not never really stated um, other than, you know, I guess the hyper-structuralist elements here. I mean, I think to a certain extent, you have to accept that, you know, you're operating within capitalist society. And so therefore, your project is going to be subsumed to aspects of capitalism. I mean, you just have to live It'll with be that. imperfect, Donald. 
but then it won't be perfect. <laughs> well, and, you that, know, that's, that's the problem. Like he takes so much because if you look at his like his other critiques of past revolutions, so much of it comes down to this constant refrain of, and then they could have made communism, but they didn't because they were dumb, and then <laughs> they couldn't. And like that's the problem with it all. But what it, it's it's almost a, in a way a hyper idealist way of looking at it because transition like capitalism is not only the result of social relations, it's also the result of material relations in the world. And changing those material relations, like changing fixed capital, is something that can't be done overnight. And so there isn't going to be like this instant leap to like the avalation of like wage labor as such immediately, no matter what you do, unless yeah, you want to have like, famines. There's never been like a, like a, a point in any revolution where the revolutionaries were given the choice of continuing wage labor or abolishing wage labor and decided to continue it because, you know, they believed in the state or some reason. Like, it's just, it's never happened that way. To overcome wage labor requires a very immense transformation of the world, you know, and, you know, but it's, it's not going to happen overnight. Unless and, we just, like, turn dollars into time chits and call them time chits instead. Yeah, I mean, unless, you know, you want to, you know, have war communism and call that communism or have some kind of barracks socialism. But it would just be a very miserable regime. And so I think, you know, like I said, no one's been given that choice of we can, you know, truly create communism or we can just, you know, have, you know, state socialism. It's, it's never been a choice that any party or, you know, even class has had in history, I think. I, I think there's a level that he's using the language of, you know, communism didn't happen because they didn't make communism. I, I don't – I feel like it's a rhetorical device that he he is saying in a sense that, you know, they had the chance. They didn't. And it's not really an explanation. It's sort of like a reminder that the proletarians, like – it's a non-explanation. He gives it, he, he does give a lot of credit to the Russian Revolution for yeah. basically smashing the state. But then he goes proceeds to go on and trash Spain. But in both cases it kind of ignores like the broader international situation and just reduces it to the revolutionary will of the participants in those particular situations. Because you know, it's important to remember that in Russia their entire taking of power was predicated upon the idea that a wider revolution would break out in Europe. Well, the Spanish Civil War, the reason that all these different groups threw in with the Republican state is because they needed to get munitions from somewhere. I mean, I, there, there was there was collaboration prior to, to – obviously, there was some level of collaboration prior to the Civil War. But once the Civil War was underway, like in order to fight a modern war, you need – you need weapons. You need access to munitions. Yeah. And with that, you need international relations with other countries. And to do that as, like, you know, anarchist separatists, you're probably not going to get very far. Although I, I do believe he addresses that in here somewhere, but I forget where it's at. It's towards the end. You know, I actually appreciate this element of Duvet that he continues to emphasize that, you know, proletarians made history even if it didn't go their way. <laughs> like, that, uh, I don't know. It's like the one thing that cuts against his structuralism that theory communist and endnotes like you know iron out 
basically. It's it's like when he makes the argument that, you know, the reason that they didn't win, because he gives some actual explanations. Like he doesn't just say, oh, it's because the proletariat didn't do it. Like he he uses that rhetorical flourish and then he'll say, well, I mean, they didn't really like attack wage labor, the wage labor relation. And to me, that's not like the most um it's not, it's not a not real most, explanation. <laughs> that's not the most obvious one. I th- I think the better these people knew capital. They knew what you know. They 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 had an understanding of what abolition of wage labor means. Like you can say, oh, but look at like Russia, for example, how that turned out. But I mean, did the Soviet bureaucracy ever claim that the USSR was even actual communism? Like even the bureaucrats in the Kremlin had like an understanding that you know in Marx's theory. Your end goal is the abolition of classes and money, et cetera, et cetera. Okay, so, I, I think I found it. He actually, I found it in this section. Um, so the, you're right. He does give like better explanations, and, and I guess here's one that he puts forward. I'm not sure if I agree with this, but here's what he says. Um, the essential difference, the reason why there was no Spanish October, was the absence in Spain of a true contradiction of interests between the proletarians and the state. Objectively, the proletari- uh, proletariat and capital are in opposition, but this opposition exists at the level of principles, which doesn't include here coincide here with reality. In its effective social movement, the Spanish proletariat was not compelled to confront, as a bloc, capital and the state. In Spain, there were no burning demands, demands to be felt absolutely necessary, which could force the workers to attack the state in order to obtain them, as in Russia, where one had peace, land, etc., uh, this non-antagonistic situation was connected with the absence of a party, an absence which weighed, weighed heavily on events, preventing the antagonism from ripening and bursting later. Um, so, you know, I guess there's a little more to this theory than I was giving credit for earlier. So it's, there. you know, the argument, that, oh, if they only had a party, it all would have worked out. <laughs> Which is well, also he, 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 well, yeah, he's well. That's connected with like the non-antagonism between the interests of the working class and the state in Spain at the time. So I guess he was saying is that there was no working class subjectivity that was truly antagonistic to the state that had never developed. But at the same time, that's just not true at all. The CNT was, you know, a mass organization that was antagonistic towards the state to a large degree. Honestly, I, I don't know how to identify the problem here without shitting on what Duvet is trying to say and saying that it's like it's because they didn't try to build a proletarian state like and instead what did they do okay so to actually go back to Duvet's point on page 36 he's saying uh did they did they hand power back to the republican state uh or did they use it to go further in the direction of communism um, they put their trust in the legal government, i.e. in the existing capitalist state. All their subsequent actions were carried out under the direction of the state. This is the central point. Like, um, that positive, you know, what, what he's saying, like, that they did, that they positively did, that was a mistake, is, you know, I, I buy that. But the answer is, there's got to be some way of, you know, coordinating these things and dealing with this problem. If you're not going to go collaborate with the Republican state, you have to build some kind of alternate legitimate power center. Like a like, dictatorship of the proletariat. You might say well, so. Well, yeah, exactly. And I think, you know, the Friends of the Rudy, which was a um, group within the CNT, basically recognized this, even though, you know, their anarchist ideology kind of went against it. You know, they eventually just say, hey, well, I actually do need like a revolutionary dictatorship of the proletariat. Otherwise, we're just going to be, you know, empowering the Republican state. 
Well, it sounds like the friends of Derudi understood this better than Derudi, if the quotes in the article are anything to go by. Yeah, I think that they, they this was, you know, they had formed after Derudi died, actually, I'm pretty sure. It just shows that it's interesting that that critique exists. But he actually um, dismisses the friends of Derudi at one point, but it shows that this critique did exist within the broader movement. There was a critique of the limits of anti-fascism within this movement against Franco. Just as in Italy, for example, you did have um, partisan groups that actually were very critical of um, anti-fascism as just pure means and ends and, rec and called for, you know, socialist revolution and not just, you know, anti-fascism to restore democracy in Italy. Like, uh, I think Bandiera Rosa was one of the groups, for example. But I, I think that um, you see this kind of stuff throughout history. But it's often very much just a minority of the proletariat.